Thanks everyone for coming. Yeah, hi. I'm Samara Freemark, and I'm the senior producer of In the Dark. And I'm Madeline Varon, and I'm the um, host and lead reporter of In the Dark. And we work for a company called American Public Media, and we work in this investigative and documentary unit called APM Reports. And the reason we wanted to do a panel at Third Coast um, is because we think audio is not being used enough to tell investigative stories, even though we believe that it's actually one of the best ways that you can tell these stories. And it's like a cliche to say that um, people connect powerfully to radio or connect powerfully to audio. But it's also true. And so when we think about these stories, these investigative stories about holding powerful people and institutions accountable, these really important stories, we should be using this platform that's really powerful to tell those stories so people actually care about uh, these issues. So what we're going to do is we're going to show you how to be more investigative in your stories. This is not like a investigative <laughs> journalism boot camp. Um, instead, Next year. what? Next year at Third Coast. Like three days. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, for one low price. Um, OK, so we're not doing that. Um, instead, we're going to show you one simple trick that we think will strengthen all of your work and make it more investigative. And that trick is. I feel like we need a drum roll. Ready? Thank you. Asking a good question. Okay, so uh, we're going to break this down into three steps in like the next hour. Um, how to come up with a good question, how to conduct your reporting with the goal of answering that question, and then how to structure your story um, using this process of answering a question. And when we're done, we will leave time for your questions. <laughs> Um, but uh, I thought that we would we'd go back a little bit first. I wanted to talk just a little bit about how um, I was taught to think about stories back when I was first starting out in radio. Um, so when I was first starting out, I was taught um, this really helpful formula um, to think about how to write a thesis statement for your story, how to frame it. Um, and maybe some of you guys were taught this too. Uh, it goes something like this. Um, Someone is doing something for a reason. So like that is the backbone um, of a story. Yeah. Um, and so I was taught that if you take that formula um, and you go out and you get some really good tape um, and you mix them together, like you would basically be good to go. Like you would have a great story. And um, so I used that formula very successfully to do um, a bunch of pretty standard public radio feature stories like along these lines. You guys are probably familiar with this type of story. Homeless services organizations building homes, uh, local philanthropists donating money, um, educators lobbying for more funding. Um, you guys recognize these stories from public radio, probably heard them quite a few times before. Um, okay, so I'm actually gonna play a little bit from um, one of these very first radio stories that I ever did, and like this is the most nervous-making thing <laughs> that I have done all week. Um, but it's we're like, like radio gonna, therapy. Everybody's gonna be super nice, right? Are you guys going to be nice? <laughs> My old editor is nodding here. <laughs> He's the one like who let this thing go on air. Um, okay. <laughs> okay, so this is, this is a story I did like so many years ago, you guys. I was a baby, um, okay. like a literal baby. Uh, I'm not going to play the whole thing because um, <laughs> no one needs that. Um, but I, I'll play some clips just so you can get a sense of it. Um, and I did not know how to track a story here. Just okay, let me okay. just say that. Okay, <laughs> she's like enough. Okay, okay. All right, you can so, do it. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Okay, so this is a story about something. 
<laughs> something called the Gowanus Canal. Um, if you guys live in, in New York, yeah. oh yeah, we got some love for the Gowanus out there. Okay, so the Gowanus is this like really, really filthy um, canal in Brooklyn. It was used as a dumping ground for like 100 years by local factories. Um, and it is like disgusting, like just really, really horribly disgusting. Um, so when I was in New York, I found out about this group of people called the Gowanus Dredgers who did this thing where they would go out on the canal and they would canoe and they would bring other people with them. And uh, I was like, sweet, um, look at those people doing something. I bet they have a reason. I'm gonna do a story on them. Um, and so this is the host intro I wrote for that story. A group of New Yorkers is trying to convince people to get out on one of the most polluted bodies of water in the country, literally out there in canoes. Samara Freemark reports that they hope once people see the water up close, they'll realize just how dirty it is, and maybe then they'll help clean it up. So you guys might see very clearly in this host intro, someone is doing something for a reason. Okay. So uh, you guys ready? Ready for some, some clips? Here we go. Okay, here's, a, here's how it started. You wouldn't believe the stuff people have pulled out of the Guanas Canal. They've found refrigerators, bathtubs, rusted cars, a 5,000-pound dead whale, a suitcase full of human body parts. And that's just the stuff you can see. The canal used to be a dumping ground for the factories that line it, and the sediment at the bottom is still full of a laundry list of toxic chemicals. There's cyanide, there's mercury, lead, asbestos. Scientists even found strains of gonorrhea in a water sample just last year. And I'm sitting in a canoe in the middle of it. Okay, oh. so we've got a little setup there. We've got the relevant information, which is basically that, like, the water is gross. It's nasty. It's really gross, as I said. Um, and then we, we're about to meet a dredger, one of the Guanas dredgers, whose name is Alex. And uh, she also thinks the water is gross. My first statement was like, oh, hell no. <laughs> I knew it was going to be nasty. That's Alex Kovaleski. She's a dredger, a member of a group that gets together to canoe the Gowanus. Okay, some time passes in the story. I hang out on my canoe. Um, I meet some other people who are out canoeing. Um, this is a couple named Stephen and Beatrice. And um, like Alex, guess what, you guys? They also think the water is gross. It was a lot worse than I could have ever imagined. They were like dead rats. I guess and, it like, wasn't that turns. mysterious. It's all the stuff I try to escape. I, 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 like you know, I actually thought I was going to have a pleasant time going out. I, yeah, it was, um, it was It was pretty intense. Repulsive. Okay, so like, there's some pretty good tape in there, right? Like we, We've got emotion, we've got disgust, like um, they're saying the word turds, like that's cool for a radio story. Um, okay, so now we are about to hit the thesis statement of this whole piece. This doesn't sound like a ringing endorsement of the dredgers, but Alex says Stephen and Beatrice's reaction isn't that bad. It's actually kind of the point. Part of it is just being in there with the poop in the trash, like, ha, here it is. You know, there's no getting away from it. When you're in it, you know, it's just, I think you're naturally you're longing to see it be restored. Okay, and that is pretty much the end of this whole piece. Like, in that and, like, the other two minutes that I didn't play, like, we have established that someone did something for a reason. We put some good tape in there, and so, like, we are basically done. There is nothing left to do here. And, you know, there, there probably is a place in journalism and in radio for stories like that. Um, but Madeline and I are, are going to argue today that we think there is actually a better way to think about stories. And that way is that. So we are basically today going to ask you um, to take all of your thesis statements that end in periods 
and throw them in the trash and replace them with thesis statements that end in question marks. Frame your stories with question marks, not with declarative sentences. And so that could look like something like this. Why is this thing happening? How is this thing happening? Or uh, one of our favorite questions, who is to blame here? So what we thought would be helpful is to take you through this process from start to finish um, using the first season of In the Dark, because that's the story that we know the best. Um, so you can see what this means. And just to make sure this isn't super confusing, we're just going to play a short trailer, like two minutes, that sets up the podcast. My favorite food is steak. My favorite color is blue. We believe that they have one of the boys because the, one of the boys did not come back with them. I wake up at night thinking about it. Law enforcement not only blew it back then, but they blew it in 2004 more than ever. There has to be an element in there to have accountability. And when accountability is not there, disastrous things happen. It was literally within a minute that they biked by our house that they were stopped up that hill. It was within a minute. I'm not going to concern myself with the things that weren't done by the investigators more than 25 years ago. Such a small fraction of sex offenders end up on a registry. And I can tell you that most of the suspects we've had in Jacob's case would never have been and never were on a registry. So there's a false sense of these are the bad guys. It's like we're regulating nuclear waste. We're not punishing the nuclear waste. We are making sure that it's kept away from us at a safe distance. How many of these types of psychopathic pedophiles can exist in this 15 to 20 mile radius? I mean, was it more than one? Was there something bigger going on? Over the next eight weeks, we're going to look at the Jacob Wetterling case in a way that it hasn't been looked at before. Not to solve it, but to try to find out why it hasn't been solved. We're going to look at what law enforcement did, and also what they didn't do. And we're going to see how those decisions would come to damage the lives of so many people in ways that no one talks about. I haven't done what I set out to do. That's the part that hurts. Okay, so um, the story started with a question. And that question is really quite simple. It's why hasn't this case been solved and what are the consequences of the failure to solve it? And just to um, talk a little bit about how this came together, so how did I get to this question? So um, I could talk about this a little bit in the podcast. So I moved to Minnesota, um, wasn't originally from there, had never heard of um, Jacob Wetterling before, I don't think. Um, and but as soon as I moved there, you'd hear people talking about Jacob, and like all of the time. I mean, so you'd be, you know, at the gas station, and someone would say, like, oh, we're coming up on the anniversary of Jacob, or um, I just keep thinking about Jacob, I hope his family's okay, like apropos of almost nothing. And so very quickly, you would learn that they're talking about this boy, Jacob Wetterling, who'd been kidnapped in 1989 and never seen again. Um, and my... Um, initial thoughts about that, I'm like really not somebody who is like a true crime person. You know, like I don't, 
like when there is like saying yesterday, like when there are these stories about like a horrific crime, like I skip like all the gross <laughs> paragraphs. I'm just like, no. Um, and like my idea of horror movies are like other people's ideas of like not horror movies, <laughs> you know? Like that's not count. Like no, it counts. It counts. Um, so okay, so I like didn't even know really. I just made a lot of assumptions about this case that it must be unsolvable. It must be one of those like massive whodunits. Nobody saw what happened or something like that. And then one day I was, um, a couple years ago, I was working on a different project and I was working on like a spreadsheet or something really fun like that. And I just ended up like on this like internet rabbit hole that like it kept going and going and we were like very subterranean <laughs> with it. Like I don't even know, like we all have done this. And I like popped up somehow in like a story about the Jacob Wetterling case of all places. And the immediately just the facts of the case I had no idea were very surprising that there were people who witnessed this abduction that the police got there right away and like even more so like this is a dead-end road this is a small town like what and so um, I was working on this other story but I had this list that I keep of story ideas and I just wrote down a question which is why hasn't this been solved um, and then that question just sat there until like a year or so later when um, Samara and I joined this newly created team and they pitched, um, we pitched the story um, and it became um, in the dark. So we found that this question, as far as we could tell, it had not been asked before by other reporters. And it was really just the power of this question that drove everything that happened from that moment forward. And so we really can't stress enough the importance of having a good question. Um, so that is the first step. So how do you do that? Urkel has some ideas. Ladies and gentlemen, Urkel. <laughs> that would be so good. <laughs> That'd be amazing. Um, okay, so let's go back to Samara's funny story about the Gwinnett Canal and how gross it is. And what we thought might be helpful is to brainstorm together about how to do things differently. So when we think about that story, what would be a good question to ask um, at the center of her mm -hmm. story? Anyone have any suggestions? And just shout yeah, like it all out. All the way yeah. in the back. How did the whale get there? Okay. How has the Gowanus Canal stayed so gross for so long? Was it used as a dumping ground? Or why was it used as a dumping ground? Who's responsible? Wait, was it? Why would you want to be on a boat in a gross canal? Reasonable question. Sorry. What would it take to clean it up and who Who's being affected by the nastiness? Yeah. How much would it cost to clean it up? These are all good questions. Yeah. How is the government acted Like how has the government acted with regard to cleaning it up or allowing it to continue to be polluted? Okay. These are all great questions. Um, so the one we thought of, which is I guess similar to lots of the ones that you brought up, is like why can't anyone clean this thing up? Why hasn't anyone been successful in cleaning up this canal? And when you think about it, you can think about how different the story would be if you started out with a question like that. Like the premise is not someone is doing something for a reason, people aren't, like, but instead it's like, how did we get to this point? Like, why isn't this working? Like, seriously, we're in canoes looking at it? Like, that's, you know. Um, so we've come up with this question for Samara's story, and we thought it would be helpful to just list some of the qualities of a good question um, when you're thinking about the story like this. Okay, 
here are our criteria. It has to be an actual question, <laughs> like a legit question. You can't know the answer to it. It's not like a trick question. Like a good editor will catch this. It's like, you know that. Like, like it's going to take me six weeks to find the answer. No. Um, it can't be a rhetorical question. It needs to be answerable using the skills of journalism. Like it can't be like a really like impossible question. And you have to do your research to see, has this question been asked before? And if it has, well, has it been answered before? Um, is there something like new or surprising about your question? Um, and then, is your question important? So once you've, uh, once you've done all this work to come up with a good question, um, and you have your question, like the, uh, the next stage, of course, is to go about answering that question. Um, what is otherwise known as reporting. Um, and so that's what you're gonna do. Um, so how do you answer a question like an investigative reporter? Um, so this is something actually that I myself have been like learning over the past several years since I've been on this investigative reporting team. Um, I think before I started working on the team that I work on now, I had this like very wrong-headed view of what investigative reporting actually was. Like I thought it was really, really mysterious and like dark and that you had to be really good at data journalism and like be, you know, like crunching the numbers on stacks of spreadsheets at all times or that like, um, you know, that maybe you just had to be the person who was lucky enough to get the call from Edward Snowden. Like maybe you were just sitting at your desk one day and pick up the phone and like, oh my God, <laughs> like, guess I'm an investigative reporter now, sweet. Um, or that like, if that didn't happen, I mean, uh, that maybe on the off chance, like, the off chance <laughs> that like maybe you just like would, we're supposed to like go out to the dark alley out back and just wait there till like someone came with a folder of documents <laughs> with like dirt on the local school board or something. And then you would open the folder and it would be like, oh my God, <laughs> like they're buying yachts with money or something like that. Um, so that was like totally, literally how I thought about investigative reporting, um, uh, which is shameful now that I think about it. Um, yeah. But maybe some of you guys also think about it kind of that way too, like what, what we get from movies. Um, and if any of you do think about investigative reporting that way, um, I actually have some really good news for you today, Yay. Um, which is that we can all do investigative reporting, even if Edward Snowden doesn't call us. Yay. Um, Yay. Because the most important thing to do if you want to do investigative reporting involves none of the stuff that I just talked about, though that happens sometimes, but um, that's not the basic important stuff. Um, the single most important thing is to just think about your reporting in a different way and think about your interviews in a different way. And it doesn't even necessarily mean interviewing different people than you would interview if you were gonna interview them for a feature story. Um, it's really about uh, just asking them different questions and interviewing them with a different goal. So I'm gonna give you an example from In the Dark of just how much this question mindset will change the way that you interview people. So if In the Dark had been not a story with a question at the center of it, so you can kind of imagine that story like, it could have been a story about how this small town is coping with this unresolved kidnapping of this boy. So if that was the story, it was more like a general story. Um, we probably would have interviewed a lot of the same people. And in particular, we, I'm sure, would have tried to interview some of the neighbors who lived near the place where Jacob was kidnapped. And, you know, if we had gone into those interviews asking them, like, tell me, like, just tell me about this. Tell me the most important things. Um, 
I think probably what would have happened in, for the most part is that people would have said, well, told us a story about how it changed their childhood. So before um, this happened, I used to be able to like ride my bike like all over the place and it was amazing. And after this happened, my parents said like, no, you can't ride the bike anymore. Um, we're putting it in the garage um, forever. And then maybe they're even like, you know what, I think I still have that bike. And you're like, oh, okay. And then like we go into the garage and this is all on tape and you know, there's the bike and it's dusty and there's like this moment of reflection and that's the tape that we would get with that kind of untargeted interviewing. There is nothing wrong with that tape. Like, and there's nothing wrong with that kind of story. Um, like that's actually an important story, but that's not the story that we are doing as investigative reporters. So what we did was something different. We had this question, why hasn't this case been solved? And we had done some research and we'd found out that um, one of the most basic things that law enforcement needs to do um, to solve a case is to talk to the people who live near the crime scene, talk to the neighbors, it's called a neighborhood canvas, you wanna to talk to them early, you wanna to talk to them many times, um, and so that's really important. We talked to the law enforcement who worked on the case and they were all like, yeah, we definitely did that. Absolutely, of course we did it. And then they'd be like, well, I don't like, actually remember doing it, but I'm, sh I'm sure we did it. You know, like we did it, we did it, totally did it. But of course we're not gonna believe them. Um, so here's, like necessarily, like, I'm not saying they're lying, but it's like, you know, your job is to figure, just to check the facts, and this almost didn't even, almost qualify as a fact because there was no actual memory of doing it. So this is what we did, this is how we approached the neighbors, um, and this is a little um, cut from the podcast. So I asked another reporter I work with, Curtis Gilbert, to call everyone he could find who'd lived on the dead-end road that Jacob, Trevor, and Aaron would have biked along the night of October 22nd, 1989, and ask them a simple question. When did law enforcement first talk to you? Curtis. We were recording? We are. Oh, okay. So you're here to give me the latest? I can give you the breakdown. I actually did, I made it immediately even like a little chart Curtis here. managed to dig up some old city directories at a local archive, and he used those to figure out who lived on the dead-end street the boys biked down on October 22nd, 1989. It was nearly 100 people. Some of them have since died. But Curtis tried to find as many as he could. He was able to reach 26. Let me pull up my spreadsheet. Um, um, I called this uh, when they were first interviewed by police. So did law enforcement talk to everybody in the neighborhood that night? That night? Uh, no way. <laughs> Uh, do you want? I brought a little tape because I thought there'd be there's a few interesting things. Yeah, that'd be great. Curtis played me some audio from the people he talked to, and keep in mind it's been 27 years, so some people's memories aren't great. We didn't hear anything, you know. Isn't that weird? But they didn't really. Uh, they didn't come to the door that night. But they. Oh, about two or three weeks later, the FBI came in. They knocked on the door. And, but it was a couple of weeks, and they interviewed. Did, uh, uh, did the police ever come uh, knocking at your door since you lived in the neighborhood? Did you ever have to talk to the cops about it? or? No. No, no they never did. They never no. did. Okay. Okay, so um, people who are sure they were talked to that night of the 26th, two. So just by asking all of these neighbors a really, really simple question, um, we were able to learn something um, that was actually pretty major, which is that the investigation into this kidnapping had been seriously flawed from the very beginning. 
And that fact is something that had actually never been reported about this case in all of the years, like almost 30 years that reporters had been covering it. This is probably almost certainly the most covered news story in Minnesota history. And um, somehow in all that coverage, no one had reported this fact because no one apparently had actually asked what is really a very simple question. Um, so that is one way to find an answer to your larger questions, uh, which is just talking to people, um, which we all do. Uh, but, but I want to ask you, again, not just to talk to people, but um, to talk to them with the goal of actually finding stuff out. Um, and again, it sounds simple, but that is the goal that drives all of our reporting at In the Dark, like finding stuff out. Um, and again, I, I want to... Like, I know how simple that sounds. I know that it really does. But I want to argue that, like, as audio producers here, um, we are super smart and super creative. And I love the work that we all do. But I think that we have this weak spot sometimes um, that gets in the way of finding stuff out. And um, that weak spot is good tape. <laughs> like, I love good tape, you guys, so much. Um, it's why I got into radio. Like, it's amazing to be able to, like, hear this stuff on tape that you don't hear anything else. It's amazing. Um, like, you probably love good tape if you're sitting here in the audience. Um, but I think that good tape can be a serious distraction. Um, because good tape is actually kind of meaningless unless it tells you something important. Um, and so when you go out on a day of reporting, like you go out with your recorder and you get your stuff and then you come back to your newsroom, um, or I guess your podcast studio or wherever you kids are working these days. Um, so this, you kids, are <laughs> you kids. <laughs> I feel so old. Um, oh, but just wait, just wait what I'm about to show you. Um, this should not be you. Yeah. <laughs> Check out my amazing tape. <laughs> Don't be like the Don't boastful the wolf. <laughs> <laughs> With the fire eyes in the boombox. I really love that gif. Madeline found that one. Um, okay, so yeah, don't be that wolf. Um, instead, you should be the wolf who comes in and is like, you guys, you will not believe what I found out today. Like, you will not believe what I learned. Like, I am getting closer to answering my question. And then, like, maybe further down the line, 20 minutes into your conversation, you're like, and also the tape is good. Like, that can come up too, but really the primary thing should be like, oh my God, I have found out something crazy. Yeah, and so there's this idea in audio and it gets told to you like it's some kind of, um, gosh, like, okay, so we've already like destroyed the idea of good tape maybe, mm -hmm. or we've dented it, we've dented mm -hmm. it. Um, but there's this other part of reporting that um, as audio people we're told like, oh my gosh, like you cannot do this because there is a kind of really useful work to be done in this kind of reporting that does not involve any tape. What? Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry, we so got a little sorry, carried away. Kat. I'm so sorry. Oh. You have like totally traumatized that kitten. That kitten is never going to recover. That kitten is like, was on its way to like a successful career. Um, I am through with audio storytelling, oh my, says the kitten. Says that cat. Okay, so... Um, <laughs> okay, um, so this is like a rule in audio that like it's almost like a law or like an official policy of audio that is like if it didn't happen on tape, it didn't happen. Um, in other words, like the only thing you should be doing, the only thing that matters at all 
are interviews that happen on tape, something that happens on tape. And here's the problem with this. If you're, what you're really trying to do as a reporter is find out an answer to a question, like those interviews with people on tape, that's only one way to answer your question. And so um, we have some examples of things that we do all the time that are not interviewing people on tape. Um, talking to people off the record. Um, and, and this sounds kind of obvious, but like seriously, you would not believe like the amount of time that like you have to turn off the microphone sometimes. And, and you may think that like you don't need to do that. Like you're getting all this stuff. You have no idea what you could be getting if you occasionally turned off the microphone. Like if, um, and of course, like you want people on the record as much as possible, but um, so that's one example. Going to archives, you know, looking at like old flyers or um, newspaper coverage or um, just old stuff that's in archives, reading um, old criminal investigative files, reading like court records, trial transcripts, depositions, um, reading like really exciting um, annual reports or audits from <laughs> government agencies, um, going to a library. Um, <laughs> Or like going online and searching social media to try to get like a sense of people's connections and interests and um, things like that. So um, that's those are all the ways that we, or some of the main ways that we think about answering a question. Um, so we thought we could try this out with an example that we can brainstorm together. So you can see what this actually looks like. So here is our fake story, a state-funded pilot project that helps kids. Um, who comes from poor, come from poorer families learn to read. Um, so we're already thinking investigatively about this. So we're framing it as a question. And our question is going to be, why hasn't this project been successful? Um, and so the question, I guess, we thought we could brainstorm is, um, what, would, what are some of the things that you would do to try to answer that question? Um, what are like some of the places you'd look, or anything, like for how you try to answer the question? Look at the budgets to see where the money is being spent. Talk to the kids. Talk to the families about barriers. Someone said test scores. How it started, why it started. So who is involved in the implementation of it? What kind of training goes on for the teachers? What books are in the classroom? And what's the other one? Compare it to a successful program. Audits of the program. Like, are there political battles that could thwart the implementation of a program? Yeah. What is the measure of success? What was used before? Teaching tactics? Yeah, so these are all, um, like, good things to find out. And we, one thing we can tell is, like, the, like, a lot of these do not involve, some of them involve talking to people, which makes sense, because that's one way to answer a question. But a lot of them don't. Like, a lot of them involve reading. Um, or like, you know, looking like what are the test scores of other places? Like what are um, the budgets? You know, what, like all of these types of things that, that are not automatically going to result in tapes. So you might think like, well, no, no, no. Because if, if you're thinking about this the other way, like you might think, well, what I need to do is like go, and this is not gonna be a bad idea, but I should probably just like go to a school and just sit in the classroom and do the story that way without thinking about like these other tools that you might have that you could supplement that with, you know, like you think about the interviews for sure, like we would all think about the interviews, but what are these other things that you could be doing? Right, like who's, who's running this program? Who's making money from it? Do they know each other? Did they, are they in the high school yearbook together at the archives? Did they, were they friends in ninth grade? Like are there public records that you could request that might help figure this out? Yeah. 
Um, okay, so the last thing we're going to talk about is how to like take this power of a question and um, uh, carry it through the writing and production of a piece. One more gift, not one more. Okay, so when you're doing this this way, like when you're doing it with the question mindset, the structure of the piece can be, like one option, is the process of answering the question. So everything that you're doing structurally in the story is on a trajectory toward answering the question. So like the listener feels like we're getting somewhere. Like, okay, we're getting closer and closer to answering this question and there's like a suspense that's building. Like we've got, oh my gosh, this happened, this happened, this happened. And at the same time, we're building like the importance of the question, you know, as well. And so we're building suspense, we're building this importance and we're building to this point where we're gonna find out, like all of us, we're gonna find out the answer to this question that we all now believe is really important. Whether it's like a big question that or it's a, a smaller question that's maybe like a very local question that's very important. I mean, if you think about like, like the Flint water story, that's an example of incredibly important, simple question. Um, so um, we're going to do all of that. We're building to answering the question and we're gonna hold somebody accountable for it. Like somebody, why is this going on? So that is one way of thinking about structure. And when you're trying to make this quest for answers the narrative of your story. There's a lot of ways to do that. Um, uh, and the one that we use maybe the most is that we try to put the process on tape. So we try to like show it to the listener by having them be able to listen to it. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for doing this. Um, like one reason is just that I think that in some ways like it, it lends a certain extra legitimacy to our work. Like it's, there's something valuable in saying to people like, look, I'm not just telling you this thing. Like I am literally showing you this is what we did. Like it took us a long time to do this and this is what we did and you can trust us. Um, so that's, that's one thing that that does. But I think even more powerfully um, is that it's this like amazing narrative device that we have available to us. Like when you're doing this kind of work of trying to answer a question, that process of discovery is inherently dramatic and it's inherently exciting. And um, I think generally it feels like a missed opportunity if we're not trying to capitalize on that inherent excitement that comes with that. And so like in, in a lot of investigative work in print and even in radio um, or TV, you'll see, you'll see findings presented like, um, you know, like, uh, our team analyzed an analysis of the documents shows that there were 27 chemical spills at this plant in 2015. Um, and that finding is not wrong, but like when you do it that way, you are like sapping all of the excitement out of that finding. So like it probably was really hard for you to find that out. Like someone probably tried to fight to prevent you from finding that out. And that finding is probably really important. Like it sounds important. And so you wanna make sure that your listeners feel that, that like they emotionally feel your data because if it's important, they should feel it in their heart. Um, and so there are like a lot of different production techniques that can help you with this. Um, you know, it can be just, I think mostly it's just about keeping the recorder out in, in situations where you wouldn't necessarily otherwise have the recorder out. So opening a file drawer and finding a folder that has the data in it. Um, or like, let's say you get like a stack of spreadsheets that are full of numbers, like how the heck are you gonna make that exciting? Even just like plopping the box down on the table and opening it and like pulling out a sheet and just reading on tape like, oh my God, this sheet has like a thousand lines of just numbers. That sounds really boring, but like I think for the listener, 
like frustration is also a narrative device. So if they can feel your frustration, if they can feel your boredom or your feeling of being daunted by something, that's good. Um, or like if you're fighting with a public information officer for access to data, like record that if you're in a one consent record. Follow the laws of your state, please. But um, <laughs> you can, uh, if it's legal, record uh, your fight with public information officers. Um, like you, you want to just show that quest the way you would show a character's quest, show your own quest for finding things out. Um, a very obvious one that a lot of people do to really good effect, especially like Reply All, they are so good at this. Um, like send your reporter or your producer out in the field, have them report, and then have them come back and tell a host their findings, and have the host like actually react to it in a real way. We do that a lot. Again, Reply All is amazing at that. Um, and that the host kind of stands in for the listener there and, tell, and kind of cues the listener of how to react to this. So if the host is like, oh my god, the listener knows to be like, oh my god, this is, mm -hmm. this is big news here. And you have to do that legitimately. Like you have mm -hmm. to like intentionally do that. So what we would do is I would not know at all what um, one of the, you know, the reporter was working on, like our data reporter. And so when he came in and told me that stuff, like it's the same like standards of like honesty and authenticity that reply to the reporting apply to that moment. Like that has to be an actual moment. Um, so to put this in perspective, if you've ever taken a writing class of any kind, you might have may have seen this um, line graph, which is the structure of a story or a line graph similar to this. So um, if you think about like a tradition, like this idea of like someone does something for a reason narrative, like. Maybe we like meet the canal people, like there's more and more of them on the canal. They're just like gross, gross, <laughs> gross, disgusting. And then it's like, I hope somebody fixes it. I hope someone cares and then we're done. Um, a different way to do this is to think about, you know, the, the, the action in the story are, are the find, like the process of finding the findings and the findings, like here's another finding, here's another one, like oh my gosh, and maybe like the pacing starts to get a little tighter and we're building to the moment where we answer the question. And so um, we wanted to show what this looked like um, for In the Dark as we went like episode by episode. The search that night was a failure. And at 3 a.m., less than six hours since Jacob had been kidnapped, investigators made a big decision. They called off the search. One of the detectives at the because scene... You, time's your biggest enemy in an investigation. People uh, have short memories. They don't remember everything correctly. You've got to get out there and talk to people and find out what the hell's going on. You have to reconstruct... The Stearns time. County, the FBI, they've all had all of this. None of this was new. None of it is new. I, I just think there probably was too much publicity and too much interest because there were too many leads for everything to be looked through. I don't know. It's hard to say. I don't, I don't know. People in town, it's, it's sort of a weird feeling when you realize that, yeah, they probably don't think too much of me. <laughs> you become a little bit, um, what's the word, poisonous or toxic. Is it working or is it not working? You can't pass legislation and then 20 years later strengthen it without any proof that it's doing what it was set out to do. The only sad part is that we couldn't have found this out sooner and and made sure, you know, other girls didn't have that happen to them. And I guess I would... Do you know really what the clearance rate is? Not off the top of my head. Okay. Um, you obviously know what it is. I do. So I can just jump to that. Okay, so um, 
we found out all this stuff, and now we're going, the climax of the story, we're going to the person who's responsible and having them answer for it, and there's this moment of suspense. This is the sheriff of Stearns County, John Sanner. There's this moment of suspense, like what is this person going to say? Um, like we've gone on this journey together. So we're gonna play a little bit of the interview um, with the sheriff, um, to, just to show you what this sounds like, um, and what, what it starts out with is me laying out my findings to the sheriff. When I first started looking into this case, it was always described as like this giant mystery that, you know, Jacob just vanished, just dark, and there was like nothing that could have been done differently to solve it. But then when I started looking into it, the way that I've looked at it has changed, and especially some of the failures of like the policing 101 stuff, like not knocking on all the doors that night, not searching nonstop, you know, calling off the search in the middle of the night. And then, you know, the decision to name Dan Rassier as a person of interest. Like, all of these things strike me as mistakes of the investigation or things that could have potentially negatively affected the investigation. And I just want to give you a chance to respond to that. Okay. <clears throat> of course, uh, if things weren't done in the right order, if things uh, weren't done at all early on, looking backwards more than 25 years ago, I can't do anything to change that now. So I'm not going to get wrapped around the axle about things that law enforcement did or didn't do. Do I wish some things would have been done differently? Sure. Uh, can I talk about that in this particular case? No. I just wonder about, like, to the people in Stearns County, whether it would make sense to say, you know what, we really messed up some things in this. And we're going to tell you that we're this is what went, we did that we wouldn't do again. Is there some accountability to the public that's needed? Yeah, I, I guess I've never really looked at it like that. Uh -huh. um, when I've looked back and, and looked at things that, boy, I wish we would have done this or I wish this would have been done, again, I, that's all we can do is wish about that. I can't go backwards and change time. Nobody can. Okay, so that's what that sounded like, and so here's the next part. So the really great thing about investigative reporting, another great thing, is that once you've done all of this work, you spent so much time finding out the answer to your question, you know the answer to your question. You are done. You can be very direct about what your story means. Um, and so um, we, by the time we came to the end of our reporting, this is what we were able to say. This was the answer to our question of why hadn't the case been solved. So basically that law enforcement had botched the investigation into Jacob Wetterling's kidnapping. They did not follow basic police practices in a lot of cases. And in general, in many cases, the Stearns County Sheriff's Office is not good at solving crime. And they aren't the only ones who are not good at solving crime. That there are many law enforcement agencies across the country that are not good at it. And nobody does much about it. Um, so it remains this way. And I should say to, um, for people who haven't heard the podcast, just to set up where we're going, is at the end of, at the very end of our reporting, just before we were going to release the first episode, um, the man who kidnapped and murdered Jacob confessed to the crime and led authorities to Jacob's remains. Um, and the way that this person did it, who this person was, it showed even more strongly um, how grave the mistakes were that were made um, nearly 27 years earlier. But the question shifted very slightly from why hadn't this case been solved and what are the failures 
consequences of the failure to solve it to why did it take nearly 27 years to solve this case and what are the consequences of that failure. Um, so once you know your findings, you can be very bold in your writing. You don't have to qualify it. You don't have to say, well, some people say that times have changed. You know, law enforcement says that, like, well, we didn't have a lot of resources, or, like, back then we didn't, like, know as much. Or, and then, well, other people, critics of law enforcement, say that, well, actually, like, none of that is true, or um, maybe what's happening is this, or I don't know, I have a hunch it might be that. Um, if you figured it out, just tell people directly, like, this is what happened. This person is to blame. This is what this means. And that moment when you come to the conclusion of your piece can be really powerful. And you've primed the listener for it because you have gone on this journey together. Like they want you, they want to hear it from you. Um, and so we want to just play what that conclusion sounded like in our podcast. So this is what we've settled on in this country as the best way to handle solving major crimes, to leave it up to people like Sheriff John Sanner, sheriffs who don't know their clearance rates, who have no clear plan about how to improve them, and who refuse to look back and see what they could have done differently. And Stearns County isn't the only place with a crime-solving problem. There are all kinds of places all across the country with part one clearance rates in the single digits or not much higher. Farmington, New Mexico, your average clearance rate from 2005 to 2014 is 13%. East Chicago, Indiana, your clearance rate is 9%. Honolulu, your clearance rate is 6%. Assumption Parish, Louisiana, your clearance rate is 12%. King County, Washington, your clearance rate is 5%. The way our country handles law enforcement, with complete local control and no oversight, means that you could live in a place that hasn't solved a single crime in 50 years, and nothing would happen. Your sheriff's office could have a 0% clearance rate, and no one from the government will step in and say, that's unacceptable. Here's what has to happen. Or even just ask the question, what's going on down there? And what this all means is that you are stuck with the law enforcement you've got. If you or someone in your family is murdered, you just have to hope that the place where you live has a law enforcement agency with a good track record of solving crime. And if your case is never solved, nothing will happen. No one will come in and take over the investigation. And eventually, your name will be forgotten. Thomas Hargrove put it to me this way. You essentially disappear from the radar. Your name is not recorded in any central authority. Uh, there's really no one out there who is assigned to review what happened to your case and whether more needs to be done, or even who you were. You, know, you become anonymous. Nobody can put together a list of the names of those 216,000 Americans who perished in unsolved murders. And that really is kind of a national tragedy. And in Stearns County, what this means is that no one could intervene when the sheriff's office took nearly 27 years to find out that Jacob Wetterling had been killed and buried 
about a mile from the home of a man they all suspected had abducted a kid before. A man whose car a witness saw that night. A man whose name had been in the Wetterling case file since almost the beginning. A man who investigators had sat face to face with. A man named Danny Heinrich. Everyone just had to wait and hope that somehow the Stearns County Sheriff's Office would manage to solve the Wetterling case. So, <laughs> just like go for it, you know? I mean, uh, that. <laughs> Like, do not, do not hold back in your writing. Like, you have done so much work. Just, just write it. Like, write it, write it more boldly than you've written something before. Just, like, try that. Try, like, the most bold writing that you can imagine. And then if you need to scale it back, you can scale it back. Like, if it starts to sound like, okay, like, you can scale it back a little bit. But, um, but just try that. Like, try, try that approach. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Yeah. <laughs> so if you have any questions, um, there's um, a microphone. Hi, I had a question about, um, we, you, I think your point about asking good questions is really well taken. Sometimes in asking questions, we can really dramatically affect the lives of people who are not, people we want to put under scrutiny, like the lives of that kid's parents, for example, did you have buy-in from the family? And if you don't have buy-in from victims, what is the ethics of investigating and asking those questions? Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Yes, so the first thing, it's a very good question. So the first thing that we did before we even pitched the story was I called um, Jacob's mother and asked if it would be a problem. Like, I think I had talked to her once before, but I wasn't sure. So I introduced myself and I said, like, would it be a problem if I were to report on this case? Like, just as the first thing, like, because I didn't know, you know, where the investigation was at. Like, I had no idea. And she said, no, like, go for it. So that was the first thing. And then um, we interviewed them very, very early and many times throughout. So, and not just that family, but also, um, like, very important as well, um, these other people who had been abused by someone who turns out to be the same person. And so I do think that that's, I mean, I don't want to say that like you couldn't ever do a story without that, um, but for us, for this story, that was really important. Um, I'm wondering, with when you have things off the record, what is your tactic for including parts of that into the show? I mean, how much of it can you include, sort of generally, without, you know, ruining your trust? Mm -hmm. Well, you can't include any of it if it's off the record. Right, but I mean, like but the usefulness of it to how you shape the story, I guess. Yeah. Like the most helpful thing I've often found is like somebody who can just guide you, you know, like a secret guide. Mm -hmm. And this person, like they could be guiding you in ways that are really almost bureaucratic. Like um, this is a structure of how like decisions are made in this company. Like if you really want to know what's going on, like you're looking at like the wrong, even the wrong like department. Like it's actually not even that department. It's like this other department or like, you know, like you think there's like this problem in the city council, there totally is, except that like, if I were you, I'd probably do a public records request for this thing. Like, that might yield something. And so you're able, like, it's able to lead you to reporting that is going to be on the record. 
um, you, and that will be helpful to you. So like, I think that that's, and then you do have situations where people start off by saying something too off the record, and then later um, they can be convinced or they want to go on the record with that. So sometimes it's a little bit of like a totally normal kind of testing process of learning to trust someone. Um, am I gonna tell this to someone? I don't know. Maybe like my first sort of safer step is to tell them off the record. And then I keep talking to them and I think, you know what, like this is really important. Like people need to know this and if no one else is gonna do it, like I'm gonna be that person. But a lot of times it's like you don't need like that like whistleblower person a lot of times. It's more like if you're covering like City Hall you just go and get coffee with a lot of different people, like clerks, city council members, the janitor, um, you know, other reporters. You just do all of that stuff, and all that is technically maybe off the record, but you're going to become like the expert, and you're going to know like what the stories are, and then you can report those on the record. Yeah, I think I actually was reading the like the Washington Post story on the uh, allegations against the guy running in Alabama. It's like a really useful primer, I think, in how to how to work with off-the-record sources. I think it's it's worth it to like go back and read their deconstruction of how they got that story, because um, they really seem to like work with these people for a long time before they agreed to go on the record. Other questions? Okay. Hi, Vince. Hey, Samara. <laughs> so, just a quick question. You referred to it, but I wanted to hear a little bit more about it. You, you guys had promos for this podcast running publicly, yeah. and then the case was solved. How much of an oh shit moment was that for you guys? And, and, and what did you decide then? I mean, for some people, they may have said, oh no, it, it's ruined. We, we can't do this now. How did, how did you sort of talk through changing the framing a little bit so that all the work that you had done wasn't in vain and you still had a series that you could go with? Yeah, I mean, so like the first thing I, I would say though, um, maybe you can get into the details, is just that like, like the very first thought is not, is like, I can't even, like, we have spent like a year with all these people and so it's like, what is going through the minds of like the Waterling family right now? What is going through the minds of the person that's been wrongfully suspected of this? What is going through the minds of these other like kids, now men, who lived in this neighboring town? It's like a lot to sort of begin to imagine like in like the first minute or a half and a half of like finding this out. And then like after that, um, because we're reporters, then we go into like, okay, like this question, so yeah. Yeah, I mean it was, so we had released a promo, uh, like a video trailer and an Apple promo, I think um, maybe a week and a half before. And then we, we got a tip, an anonymous tip essentially, that this was gonna happen. So we had about four days of lead time to it actually being public, a couple days of lead time. Um, so yeah, from a production standpoint, I would say there was, there was a moment of, there were several moments. There was a long time of like looking at each other in silence. Like look, like me and Madeline looking just at like, someone, looking at someone in silence for two minutes. <laughs> it doesn't sound like a lot of time, but it is so long. <laughs> like I don't know what our faces were doing exactly during that time. It was just um, like shock and just mm -hmm. trying to. But like our question wasn't like if we had pretended, to, if we thought that our job as investigative reporters and this story was to pretend to be detectives, well, yeah, then, okay. But that was never our goal. So our question was, the, was always that question of why hasn't this case been solved? And in a way, like, I think having that question out there, the fact that we had, like, even, like, just, like, put out this little thing that was, like, guys, we're not solving it. Like, we're not doing that. We are trying to ask the questions of law enforcement. Like, we're not the people who are hired by the public to solve crimes. Like that, those people are called police. <laughs> and so we're looking in that direction. Like I think that that was helpful. 
But it did require, I mean, it, we thought we were basically nearing the end of the writing. Like we were about to like start hanging out with friends and you know, like just doing normal things. But it, so it did require like months of just um, reworking. I mean, we had done, because we had been reporting towards answering this question, we had of course come across this name Danny Heinrich before. Like we were very familiar with him. He was in our notes and our, we are obsessive about organization. And so our notes, to pat ourselves on the back, are very, we are very well organized in how we keep track of our information. And so um, quickly turning around a story about Danny Heinrich, which episode three became, essentially, became the primary story we did about Danny Heinrich, um, we were able to turn that around very, very quickly because all of the reporting had been done already and, and existed in our systems. And it was literally a matter, in some cases, of like control effing our way through all of our research. Like through a timeline that we kept, like a, like a 400, 500 page timeline of the wetter, of everything about it. And so we just searched for Heinrich, pulled out Heinrich, gave him his own timeline. Um, I mean, it's a little more complicated yeah. than that, but like that, that was like really helpful because um, we wrote that episode in like, and produced it and tracked like a it in day. a day. Yeah. Um, but it did, I, just one final thing, like I do think it made, it, I think it, in, at the end of the day, it made our reporting so much stronger because like all of these things that we could say in a sort of hypothetical way before, like this was screwed up, we're not sure if it influenced the investigation, this was also screwed up, we're not sure. Like now we could literally say like, you did this, it was wrong, it messed up the investigation, you did this, it was also wrong, that messed up the investigation, and we know because we actually know now what happened. And it also like removed this thing that we do not like as reporters that is a narrative device, but it is this like mystery ambiguity thing. Because especially in a story like this, it's like that, like Patty Wetterling has said this, like this is not a detective novel, like this is not a game of Clue. Like this is like actual life, this is my child. And so to like not have that issue, like to not um, have to contend with like this mystery, like what we wanted was the case to be solved and we wanted to figure out why law enforcement hadn't solved it. And so then in a lot of ways, like the timing, even though it was like not in some ways not ideal, it allowed us to like immediately like make the story stronger and, and actually you know have a better answer, I think, um, even if it did ruin our lives for several months. It's minor, it's minor, it's, it's fine. It's like our job, right? Like, it's okay. Hey. Hi. Hi. Um, this is great. And um, uh, somebody told me about it yesterday, and the one question I had um, when they told me about it was, um, uh, how much of your reporting do you think um, influenced them catching this guy? And, and, and if, if you think that, that you did have like a hand in that, you know, like asking the right questions or whatever, um, what's there to be said about starting from that place, right? Starting from a place of, we actually want to figure out who did this. Yeah, I think that's a good question. Um, for us, we felt like the reason to not start with that question was because like that question had been asked so many times before. And so it's not like it's a bad question to ask. I mean, like, like Earl Morris in Thin Blue Line, figured out what actually happened. That's a good public service. But like for this story, we felt like we wanted to hold law enforcement accountable. So we were intentionally not asking that question. And in the reporting, we were really like, even in our conversations, like stopping ourselves. Like, okay, enough with the speculation, like back to the, what law enforcement is doing. Um, as far as we, I mean, we have no idea what led to this being resolved. I mean, he, um, 
we have no information that would suggest that like what we did led to it being resolved. I mean, one of the issues with this case is that because how it got resolved was in the, a plea deal, the plea deal is not public. Like those discussions between all of the lawyers, prosecutor and defense attorney, like it's, it's attorney client privilege, it's not public. So the public can't know like how exactly it came together the way that it did. Yeah. I mean, if we were to ever find out how the plea deal came together, like we would tell you. <laughs> like, but we don't know. <laughs> yeah. Hi, I was wondering, um, you know, you obviously have a dedicated team and this was your whole full-time project that you were working just on this. Um, so do you have any tips for, um, one, convincing news directors that investigative reporting um, and taking more time for projects is worthy, and also allocating resources as a single person or within a much limited structure and time constraints um, and doing you know, similar investigative work? Yeah, that's a good question. So I started out like in, in a newsroom as a, like a part-time general assignment reporter online for a radio station. So that's like an interesting job. But I figured like it didn't matter what the actual job was. That like in a newsroom, like I think in most newsrooms, hopefully the good news is, is that like there's a hierarchy of stories. And so if you, the best story wins. And so like most editors, if you present them with an option of like, do you want me to cover the fact that the snow is falling again? <laughs> or do you want me to like expose this corruption in the school board? <laughs> Like, you, I mean, you're gonna get like option B. So that what that means though, like for you as a reporter, is that you cannot ask permission to do this work. Like you just need to like figure out whatever you need to do to do this work. And then, I mean, at least for me, what worked is like to not bring it to an editor. I mean, not to go like do something that would not be considered okay in the company, but just like to try to like work some stories like on the edges. You know, like if you have like an hour, you know, start filing some public records requests. Like start thinking in that way. And then maybe you bring something the first time to an editor that's almost entirely done. So they're going to say yes, because it's like, it's done, and like, of course, that's fine. <laughs> and then when that's successful, and it's factual and good, then maybe you can, again, do the same kind of like secret thing, you know? <laughs> and like, um, maybe this time, like it's a slightly longer story. Or maybe this time you say to your editor, you know what, like, I feel like I need like a day to do this, like to finish this. And they're like, oh, okay, fine. Or, or okay, great. Um, and then you just like keep doing that until like you have gotten yourself into a situation where like no one is going to suggest that like the best, the newsroom's belief that the best use of your time is to be covering the daily stuff. Because like you're the person with the amazing story ideas. Um, like if you wait for an editor to assign you a great story, you're gonna be waiting forever in some <laughs> cases. You know, especially if you're like in a newsroom where like that kind of stuff is not like there's not a lot of mentoring or there's not a lot of like noticing someone's talents. Like you can't depend on that happening. Like you have to be more assertive than that. So you have to just like come up with like a plan for yourself, like a real actual plan and just execute it. Like I'm not even I'm just going to do this and I'm going to see what happens. Um, but I'm not going to wait on like other people to recognize that I can do this. If that makes sense. And even on our team, like we work on an investigative team, but it was still like a really intense pitch that we had to make to the mm -hmm. company. This was like a lot of work that went into convincing our company to give us the time to do this. And it really came down to like, 
what is the question here? It has never been asked and answered before. Like we could do something totally new and find out stuff that has never been found out before, and it's really important. And so like that is what sold it, um, and that's why they said yes. It was just on the strength of the story idea. And like some pushback is good because that's like like another word for some pushback is editor doing their <laughs> job. You know, it's like if like be very suspicious of the editor who's always like, oh, that's a great another amazing <laughs> idea. Who like and then like you bring back the script and they're like. Unbelievable, it's perfect. <laughs> I wouldn't make a single change. You're like, just don't think that like you're amazing. Like, be like, turning to that or being like, seriously, like not a single edit? No way. So no, some pushback is normal. It'll make you better as a reporter. Hey guys. Um, I know you're working on a second season and I don't know how much is public about what, what that story is about yet. Um, but I'm interested in hearing some of the conversations and decision-making and process in figuring out after a first season like this with a serialized story like this, what story you do next. Ooh, can I talk about this one? Yeah. So we, are not, we have not released what we're working on right now, so we, we aren't talking about it yet. It is a really great story, and I'm super excited for it. It's going to be awesome. Um, but I will say it was, a, it was a really interesting thing. I was just thinking about this yesterday, because like we did this whole first season not like plan you know like we didn't know what it was going to be exactly like we knew what the story was but we didn't know like what sort of the end result was going to be we didn't know there was going to be a second season we didn't know we were like making a show um and so like after we released the first season and it was very successful um we had this moment where we were like we should really kind of figure out like essentially what our mission statement is which we had not done before the first season um the first season was just driven by the story and so we did sit down and think, like, what is in the dark? Like, what are the kinds of stories that we tell? Um, and we, I wish I could remember it off the top of my head, but I think, like, we wanted to tell stories that were, like, on their face exciting. We wanted to tell them in a way that was, like, addictive and that had these, like, oh, my God moments that would lead people to yell at their radio, um, but that, that exposed these things that had never been exposed before and that were important to the people involved in them and that were also important in a national way. And so those were the criteria. Am I forgetting any of the criteria? No, that's awesome. Thank you. Those are the criteria that we kind of laid out for an in-the-dark story, and I even like printed it out and put it on my wall. And then that became very helpful because we ended up getting a flood of tips after season one of In the Dark, like so many thousands, I think, at this point, of people writing in with story ideas. And we had, of course, our own ideas as well. And it was very useful. We could eliminate like 99% of these tips just by looking at our mission statement and saying like, does it, is it possible to make a story that fits this mission statement with the story idea? No, 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 no. And then just winnow it down to a handful of ideas that we really reported out. We reported out like several of them. Yeah before we settled on the one that we're doing now. Yeah, because like when you're gonna go into that process, like of when you actually are committing to it, you're really saying a lot, like in terms of resources, and so you have to do some initial reporting to feel like, yeah, this is the right one. Yeah. yeah. Could you tell us a bit more about how you, like the logistics about how you organize things? Like you said you had a 400 page outline, was that in Google Docs? Like how did you organize your tape? <laughs> Yeah. Should I? <laughs> Go for we it. Have, we have a lot of systems. Um, okay, so the reporting mostly is organized in timelines. So that's a Word document. And it's timelines are, this is like Madeline's trick. They're so helpful because they enable to, you to see connections between people and things. And like, this person is doing this at the same time this person is doing this. Oh my God. So you have like um, one timeline and everything goes on the timeline. Like everything. our timeline for the wedding story was like, 
the pre like the early history of or of like Stearns County, like hundred you know going back more than hundred years. Yeah, and and also it's very searchable because it's in words. So we have that. Uh, then our we have contacts in a, like an Excel spreadsheet. Um, names, who they are, and their contact information. And then our tape uh, is kept in folders, indexed folders. And so, you know, we have folder, a folder for interviews that has all of the interviews in it and an index that goes with the interview folder that has all of the tracks listed out. We have a folder for archives, same thing, a folder for debriefs and discussions, which is us talking to each other with an index. And then we have like folders for all of the documents that we're finding as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and the photos and the we have like so much and these are all digital like these are digital folders so everything that comes in that's not digital gets digitized like we don't deal in paper documents (laughs) oh my gosh so like um so like we just have like these boxes of stuff that we just keep and then like after the project's done we decide like whether to to like shred them or whether to keep them but um and the other thing too is like we have like like a list we also have like very simple lists like what are our main findings, right. you know, or like what are the main points of this important interview? Like what are the findings of it? Yeah. I think those systems are so important when you're dealing with huge amounts of material because otherwise you just get, you drown in it and it becomes yeah. useless if you can't access it. And even like small, I mean like if, if you're like a general assignment reporter, like you never know when you're going to go back to something and turn it into an investigative story and you're gonna want like some moment from like a transportation committee hearing, who would have thought? <laughs> you know, or you interviewed someone like for two minutes. And so just, I n- would never in the newsroom throw anything away because you never know. And um, so you wanna keep all of this stuff organized in, in that, in, in some system, like I don't like believe in like one particular system, but like find something that works for you and then just like, go, yeah, don't alter it. Like, even though, like, sometimes it's very time-consuming to, like, follow the system. It could be easier. Just, like, upload it to Haven. We'll figure it out later. Like, no. Yeah, like, we have naming conventions. We're pretty neurotic about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Hi. Hi. Um, I just want to say thank you so much for this because it's so refreshing to see someone who's actually going about and actually asking these questions because that's the one thing that I get a little bit annoyed with when I look at traditional media is just kind of this general, here's the question, or they didn't have a question, but just kind of what you stated in the beginning, like, it's a story about a person and they did this thing, that's it, and it's like, okay, well, what's next? What's the, what else can we learn from this, you know? Asking those good questions just seems to be like that missing piece, and I appreciate outlets like this, and you guys did an awesome job with this story. so that's just a general comment, but uh, I have a question just in general for this particular episode, this series. Like, did you get any pushback from like Stearns County of like just talking about like you know you kind of beat them up and you, but they deserved it. Let's be honest. They did it to yeah. yeah, they did it to themselves, absolutely. So it's like they deserved every criticism that they got. But did you get any pushback from that from them? No, and, like respond really. Not after it aired. No, well, I mean, we after the after the interview we did with the sheriff, he called us to clarify, but his clarifications were saying exactly the same thing. Yeah, I got a call um, from him like the next day, and I was thinking, or maybe it was a couple days later, thinking, oh, is he going to try to, you know, like it's common like in an interview where people might call later and be rethinking something, and so I thought maybe that was what was going on, but he was just like wanting to make sure the purpose of the phone call 
according to him, was to make sure that I understood that the reason that he called this other neighbor, Dan, a person of interest was because he talked to the media. And I was like, yes, <laughs> that is very clear. That's exactly what you said when we talked. So no, he didn't. And they didn't have any corrections or anything like that. And I think actually to add to that, so one thing that, like when I was talking about my conceptions of investigative reporting versus like the reality of how we do investigative reporting. This is another thing I've learned from Madeline is like, I thought investigative reporting was about like jumping out at people and, you know, like surprising them. And the way that we do it and that I learned from Madeline is like, we're not trying to surprise anyone. Like this is not about surprises. We're trying to find things out and we're trying to give people an opportunity to respond. So the sheriff shouldn't been, I, I don't think he would have been surprised by anything that we put in our podcast. Yeah, I mean, because the goal of like an interview like that isn't really that different from the goal of any interview, which is to say, to understand this person, who they are, what their motivations are, what their background is, why they're doing, what did they do and why did they do those things? And what do they think about them? And so there's an additional element when it's an elected official and you have, I mean, like they, they need to answer some questions, right? Because like we elected them. Um, so the public has a, you know, a right to answers, it seems. But really like the process of the interview is not like some, like there's this term that gets used in investigative reporting a lot, like a, the confrontation, which I hate because it's like, I'm not like a prosecutor or judge or juror. Like, it just sets the wrong mindset for it. So instead, it's like a, it's like you're sitting down, and we talked to him for like three hours or something. Yeah, and he was really generous with his time, and he really helped us. He did the thing that you most want an interview subject to do, which is to like take you into their world for a little while, and help you understand the way that they are and the way that they think. And so he did that, and it was very clear, like what, um, you know, we were very clear in our questions. There wasn't like a whole lot of time spent on anything that wasn't like, why didn't you solve this case? Why didn't you solve this case? What, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so you said uh, earlier, you said you know when you're done. You know, you have your question, you know when you're, you know when you're done. But, um, but how, uh, how did you decide that you were done? Because you really have a series of answers um, to the questions and they, and they keep getting, uh, they get deeper, they get broader in some, in some ways. And then, you know, the last one being, hey, the way law enforcement, local law enforcement is structured across the whole country is, has issues. And so how did you, what was your process of deciding, okay, we've, we're done, how did that happen? Yeah. I mean, it really was, I know we've said it and it sounds simple, but it really was when we reached the point of being like, can we, ex like, what is the answer to this question? And, and also you're like trying to, like you get to a point with reporting, like on longer pieces, at least, I found this to be true where, you know, when you're like right in the middle of reporting and you're talking to all these people, every day you're finding out something new or like every hour you're finding out something new and you just are like, there's not a single day that that, that doesn't happen or a single week that that doesn't happen. And once you start to get to the end of a story, like the number of new things you're finding out, just it's like a, just, oh, there's only like one new thing, yeah. like four days later four days filled with people telling you what you've already found out, which is important, like that's not nothing. But you get to a point where you're not finding out anything new. And, you, and this is like where like having a, like a good editor or a friend or someone you can talk to is really important because you want to keep reporting through a little bit of that, or sometimes even a lot, and you wanna be thinking constantly, like the, the number one question that we ask ourselves when we're toward the end of a project and I also asked myself this at the beginning and middle, <laughs> how am I wrong? Like, what is the explanation 
for this that isn't actually bad? Like, is there some way that this could all make sense and actually be good or something? You know, like, and so it's like a mental trick you're playing, but your editor is, in some ways, or a friend is more equipped to play it because they're not like in the weeds with you. So you do want to continue reporting a little bit past that. Um, and I don't think it's, it's not even that you stop learning new things. It's that the, the narrative of what, like your understanding of what is going on becomes solidified. Like when you first start reporting, it's just kind of like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, like what's like, important? All, I have no idea. Right. Like there's just all this kind of crazy stuff and it's all scattered all over the map. And then as the reporting continues, you can almost feel it like forming this narrative. And then as the reporting goes on, like the new things are just kind of slotting into that narrative. And you're like, it's just becoming, it's like additive, but it's it's just reinforcing the narrative. It's not like yeah. taking us in new directions at all. But you do want to be thinking about like that critical thinking. Because like there was a pre previous project I worked on where we were trying to figure out who was responsible for the, a cover-up of sexual abuse. And everyone was telling us that it was this one person. And like certainly there were plenty of documents and plenty of people saying, pointing to this one person who was like a high-ranking official in the Catholic Church. And he was partly responsible, but it took some additional, like, not just reporting, but thinking critically of like, wait a minute, this guy couldn't possibly be 100% responsible for this because he reports to the archbishop, even though we had no evidence really almost at all that the archbishop at that point was involved. It was just this like, hold on a second, like I get that we've done a lot of answering the question, but we need to do a little bit more. We need to go to where the, we went to end up going to Louisiana to where the bishop had started his career. So you do want to be thinking about like, have you accounted for these things? But I think like in a way, like in a longer project, it's maybe a little bit more complicated because you've asked this like big question, you have all this time to answer it and you better answer it, like you better not miss something. But if you're working like on a daily story too, you can ask a question that is legitimately answerable in like three days or one day or, you know, um, at least, yeah, you can start. Hi guys. Oh, hi Hans. Hi. <laughs> Hans. We work with Hans. Yeah, we Long time listener, first time caller. <laughs> He's uh, our plant, I hope. Just because you have a really good, important question doesn't mean that people necessarily want to share their thoughts in helping you find the answer. How do you get people to talk to you who might not want you to get there? We don't have that much trouble. <laughs> well, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, you have to, a couple things I guess I would say about that is number one, like this thing that reporters do all the time that we all do is a little bit pathological. <laughs> so like we're strangers, we're showing up and we're asking you personal questions. And like, if you have any concerns about that, here's a business card, you know, <laughs> like, like that doesn't, that shouldn't help no one who's got like normal sense of boundaries, you know? So like, when you're working on something that's a little bit longer, or even if you're working on something a little shorter, you could take five minutes first at least to say like, this is who I am, this is what I'm working on, this is some other stories I've done, or these are people that you could talk to if you have questions about my work or how I am or this kind of stuff. Um, in longer stories, it can look you know, like a very extended version of that, like let's go out for coffee, let's go out for coffee several times, like let's talk on the phone. Um, there was one person I was once trying to talk to who, who that went on for like a year, but it's all about like, trying to get people to like a legitimate point of feeling comfortable, especially when you're doing stories that are about really difficult things. Like you don't wanna like demand that people trust you, that's not fair. Like you have to show that you're trustworthy in some way. The other is um, thinking about like what possible reason could people have for wanting to talk to a reporter. Yeah, and we game this out like pretty intensively yes. like talking to each other. So like why in the world, like if I was this person, why would I talk to a reporter? And sometimes it's really easy. 
Like, I'm a scientist, I've done a study, I want to publicize it. Or, you know, I'm an environmental activist, I want people to know about this, I'm going to talk. But then with a lot of investigative reporting, it's not always like that. And so you're thinking, what is, what could possibly be the reason? Like, does someone want to expose something? Um, you know, sometimes it can be a very, like, selfish motivation the person might have. Um, in the um, reporting I did on the archdiocese, the Catholic Church reporting, there was a priest that I wanted to talk to who had abused children and had received um, his pension. He was retired. He was still a priest, but he wasn't saying mass. But um, he'd retired. He was getting his pension, but he was also getting these secret extra payments every month. So he's making, like, more than the priests who hadn't um, sexually abused children for the most part. So it's like, why would this guy talk to me? Like, he's living in this nice house. He's never gone to prison. And I did, like, a lot of brainstorming about it. Like, it's not like you come to the answer because you're, like, some, like, really good human intuition person. It's like you think about it a lot. Like, you think, you go for a walk and think about mm -hmm. it. And finally, I decided that what I thought might work is that even though for all of us looking at this, we're thinking, wow, this person really got away with a lot, that maybe from that person's perspective, they have been wrongfully treated. Like maybe they feel wronged in some way. Maybe they feel like their situation is in some way unjust, which is not to say that I accept that idea, but instead it's like, okay, if I think that that's true, then how should that affect how I go and talk to this person? Which is really like, what should the first question be? And I think the first question ended up being something like, how does, how did you, how does a priest like yourself end up in a situation like this? How does that happen? Um, which is a pretty neutral question. Like, I'm not condoning anything, and I wouldn't, but, so it's like you think about that, and, and I thought about, like, versions of that question. We will also, like, like, endlessly play out all kinds of scenarios of what people might say to us. Yeah, we, like, we do a um, fair amount of just, like, showing up at people's doors. Like, that is a thing that we do, and that yeah. requires, like, a lot of thought and gaming out. Yeah, and then you mm. also have to get into this mindset that, like, sounds cheesy, but I definitely believe it, which is that once you've done all this work of, like, even if it's really quick in your mind, this guy's an activist, he's going to talk to me because he's an activist, but he might not like me very much because remember when my news organization did this thing that pissed him off, for example. Like, so I need to address that. And I think this is how I'm going to start. And this is the first two or three sentences I'm going to say to him. And if he says this, then maybe I should acknowledge that that's valid. Or if he says that, then I should ask this. Once you've done all of that, you kind of like have to be like, okay, like take like a deep breath and be like, of course he's going to talk to me. Of course he is. And like, you have to have that moment of, of some level of confidence that this is going to go okay, even if you have to force it like the first couple times. But you can get into that mindset of like, this is going to work. Pick yeah. up the phone. He's going to talk to me. This is going to be great. And in an hour, it'll be done. Yeah. And like one simple tip that I gave to someone recently is like, I think a lot of beginning reporters, they will often go into these essentially like a cold call interview by saying like, hi, you know, I'm a reporter and I would love to sit down and do an interview with you. And then the person has like a perfect opportunity to say, no, thanks. Like, no, I do not want to do an interview. That sounds scary and time intensive and not like something I'm into. And so that is something we never lead with. Like we always lead with like, I'm a reporter. We explained exactly who we are. We're public radio reporters. I'm Samara. This is Madeline. Um, but then we just like start a conversation. We don't like make it into a, a big like thing right away. Yeah. Yeah. Question. Hi. Um, so I love the series. Thank you for Thank this. You. Um, I wanted to ask like how did you pitch it to your bosses and how did you convince them and yourselves that the answer the answer to your question would be satisfying? Um, 
like, did you play out the scenarios in your head of like what the most boring answer could be and still convince yourself that that would be satisfying enough? Do you know what I mean? And That's also, like, yeah. and also um, do you think the series would have been as satisfying as it was if the confession hadn't come right when it did? So those are two good questions. Yeah, so the first one, the first. Um, yeah, so what we did when we pitched the story, so before the story really got accepted by everyone, including ourselves, we spent a lot of time doing some preliminary reporting. So we wanted to find out, it was this thing that we talk about on our team a lot, which is um, like the least possible story. And so what is the least possible story? And so like within the dark, what we did is we figured out a couple things that seemed like really big mistakes that were basic. Like they called off the search after a few hours. Um, there were a couple others that were in that category. Some of them didn't even end up being in the podcast. So there was something there. And we reviewed all of the old news coverage to make sure that nobody had, as far as we could tell, had asked or tried to answer that question of why it hadn't been solved. Um, and then we did like a general review of like, okay, well, what kind of information is still out there? Are, how many people are still alive of like the key law enforcement officer. So is this going to make sense? And then once we had done that, then we go back to um, the editors and pitch it. And, and the bar was high for that because it was like literally the most covered story in Minnesota. So like pitching a project like that to editors and saying like, we want to spend a year, a long period of time with at least two people on the story that is like the most covered story ever is a really hard sell. And it was the question and the fact that no one else had asked that question, that was why they said yes. Yeah, and, um, and editors should push back a little bit or they're not doing their job. So like, if you have an editor who's always like, great job, <laughs> you're like, maybe like, you could <laughs> criticize me sometimes. <laughs> um, but, um, but we're really fortunate to work on this team where we, like, that's what we do. We have the resources to do, to do, like that's the only thing we do. So it was really just a question of, is this worth it? Like, is this important enough? Like once we established that like, we could find out some things that are interesting and could answer this question, is the story itself important enough to justify that amount of time? And so that was you know, one of the questions that we answered. Yeah? Um, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about your process after, you mentioned you know, right before the first episode came out, they solved the crime. Uh, and so I wonder about the process of that, if you did, went through any rewriting of, I mean, you did, but I'm sort of curious about um, how that changed the podcast, because when I, I tell everyone I know to listen to this podcast, if they're just in audio, because I'm like, this is like, they got solved right in the first episode, like, how do you <laughs> do with a year of reporting? So I'm curious just about how that, uh, what that process was like for, for your team. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the first thing intense. that happens is like, you find out that it's been solved and you've spent all this time with people and you're thinking, like, from multiple people's perspectives and your own, okay, here, here is the family of Jacob finding out. Here's the family of the, here's the neighbor who was wrongfully accused finding out. Here are these other people who are kids in the neighboring town finding out. And it's like, this is a lot. And then you're wondering if, is it even true? Could it I mean, cause there've been so many rumors. Um, but once we realized it was true, um, I think we just like stared at each other <laughs> in silence for a long time. Like it seemed like. It seemed like a half an hour, but probably like a solid minute or two. But if you've ever just like stared there at some, someone there some curse for, words. for a minute and a half. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, was, it was like a, such a good thing to happen. It's what everyone wanted to happen. So the question for us became like, like the good thing about our question was that our question was the same. And so it really became a matter. So what we had to do, tech, practically speaking, we, 
went back into a number of the episodes and had to obviously update the script when we said like hadn't been solved. But also we had new information um, when the man who did it confessed to the crime, like specifically what he said happened, which made our findings even stronger because it was like these were no longer hypotheticals. Like if they had canvassed the neighborhood, if they paid attention to what the, the wrongfully acute, um, suspected person had said, um, it would have made a difference. So it was like a lot, it actually made the writing easier in a way. Yeah, because we could be so much more strong with it. I mean, I think like, I think my first reaction to this was like, oh, wow, who's going to want to listen to a podcast about like a crime that has been solved? Um, but then very quickly we realized, no, like we have, we've been reporting for a year, we have all these ideas of the way that law enforcement messed up. But like up until that point, we hadn't known which of those ways were the ones that were really crucial. Like, did it matter that they didn't do this or did it matter that they didn't do this? And as soon as we knew what had actually happened, all of a sudden we could say like, this, this really mattered, this really mattered. Like, especially there was a whole episode on this wrongly accused neighbor. And, you know, we wrote that episode as strongly as we could because we, we didn't think that this neighbor had committed the crime. No. But like we couldn't literally say like we know that this guy is innocent until there was a confession. And once there was a confession, it was like, like we will just tear these people up because like this guy has been completely wrongly accused and it has and ruined his life. His life has been ruined in many ways. Yeah. Right. The other thing too is that like, like as reporters, we don't actually really like mysteries. You know, I mean, like it's our job to not to solve crimes, but to like to not to like cut through ambiguity and figure out what was going on. And so, like, as a reporter, um, like, one of the questions that, like, we sometimes get asked a lot is, like, did it, like, wreck it structurally or, or story-wise? Like, no, because fundamentally we're reporters. We're supposed to find out what happened. And, and the, if a question is, why hasn't this case been solved? Or what are the, why did it take so long to solve? We need to know who did it and how did they do it. And so, but it was, I mean, it was a lot of work. And then it also, um, I mean, it was, uh, we decided to speed up the production schedule, which in retrospect, I don't know what we were thinking, but we were like... This is like the most measured explanation of those three months of our lives. <laughs> we decided that we should release episodes one and two. Together a week early. Like yeah. a day after the confession. Yeah. We didn't sleep much for a long time. But that's fine. Totally fine. <laughs> oh, sorry. Um, Oh yeah, we're at a time. Season two. We're out of time. What? <laughs> oh, sorry. Um, no, there's not really. We can't really. I mean, we're in, we're reporting season two. Season two is going to be a different story. It's going to be um, a different question. Speaking of questions, mm -hmm. um, but we're super excited about it, and we don't have a date for it yet. But we can't wait to <laughs> release it into the world. It's true, right? It's super true. We're so excited yeah. about this story. Can't yeah. wait. Thank you so All much right. for Thank coming. Thank you guys. <laughs>